Good, I was wondering what to say tonight. Um, the situation is an interesting one. Many of you have just arrived. Some of you have already been here for a while. Um, you're doing, uh, by what little I have gleaned from speaking to some of you, quite a variety of different practices. This is unusual in, in many respects. And um, so I thought I, I try to give you some perspective from a fairly unenlightened vantage point and completely non-canonical um, from what I believe are necessary components of meditation practice. Uh, in fact, what I believe to be Buddhist meditation practice and what I believe to be indispensable dimensions of Buddhist meditation practice. Uh, I try to do that with as little Pali as possible uh, because sometimes the Pali, uh, as tempting as it may be to adopt a technical jargon, is a beautiful source for misunderstandings. We can use, we can agree on a jargon and completely have different notions of the terms we're actually using there. So, um, I think one of my uh, lines for tonight is basically uh, give away the take-home message straight at the beginning here. Um, meditation is more than technique or method. There is no technique or method that is going to take you all the way. As indispensable and as powerful techniques and methods are, uh, no technique or method is going to make the mind free. No technique or method, however effective, however useful, however indispensable, is going to take you the whole way. The Buddha's notion of bhavana is um, bigger than any technique, any method, any particular approach. There is a, a man I'd like to quote. It's generally normal that Buddhist meditation teachers quote poems. Rumi is very popular. <laughs> Mirabai is very popular. Maybe a little Rilke. Mary Oliver goes down well. <laughs> you know, if you're going to push it, Robert Frost or something. Grim E.E. E. Cummings, maybe. Um, I would like to quote a guy slightly uh, coming from a different field in the, in the non-government-subsidized world of uh, cryptography and security. He is considered a god. His name is Bruce Schneier. Um, I say that with some emphasis because I have my doubts whether you really are up there on the world of security and cryptography gods. And he has something interesting to say. And one of the things he says, if you believe technology is going to solve your problems, you do not understand your technology, and worse, you do not understand your problems. And I think this is a profound piece of wisdom in there. So, um, well, for meditators, it may be obvious that cryptography is not going to solve the world's problems. It may be less obvious for meditators that meditation techniques and 
methods are not going to solve the meditator's problems. You know, we have more than a slight affinity for what Buddhist psychology calls sila bhatta upadana, the grasping at the uh, notion of right practice, right method, right approach. There is a lot of that grasping going on. And usually that type of grasping, Buddhist commentaries uh, define this term basically by describing the grasping at, is largely the grasping at, of all those people who are not Buddhists, you know, kind of who are animists or who believe in gods or who uh, believe in magic, things like that. So Buddhist commentaries try to pass off that type of upadana, that type of grasping and attachment and identification as the sort of practices the others are doing. Yeah? And uh, there may be some truth in this. Unfortunately, Buddhists are not at all exempt from this type of grasping. In fact, Buddhists are really good at grasping at methods, right approaches and techniques. And the more people give up, the more dedicated they are, the more focused they become in their practice, the more they tend to you know, emphasize particular approaches, particularly if these approaches produce results for them. So we tend to grasp the techniques and methods and approaches and diets and exercise and regimes and things like that. We tend to grasp at the things that actually work. You know? So it's not that we're grasping at stuff that doesn't work. It's generally our attachment is directly proportional to the extent we derive benefit from these things. And you see, the catch is there. Grasping at things that don't work is stupid. Yeah? That's fairly obvious. But grasping at things that do work is still a form of grasping. And while we may reap the results of these activities, our grasping is still come at, going to come at the price. So, um, by my experience, if people give up a lot, generally they will, in some way, diminish the quantity of their attachments usually by a certain increase of quality of their remaining attachments. Yeah? So in monastic life, uh, this is very obvious, the last things people give up is their opinions and their meditation objects. You know, if you take everything away from them, you know, they will still hang on to their opinions quite ferociously. Obviously, they will not admit that. Uh, so you know, if you ask them point blank, they generally will not admit. But uh, it's uh, anecdotal evidence, of which I believe I've seen quite a bit of. Um, it's quite obvious that this takes place. We cannot let go so easily. And the more uh, dramatic our gestures of renunciation are, often this renunciation on one level is compensated on another level with a deepening of our ruts, a deepening of our beliefs, a deepening of our attachments to the stuff we deem to be particularly precious, particularly valuable, particularly pristine, particularly venerated, particularly handed down. Yeah? And it doesn't mean that these things are not valuable or pristine or venerated or effective or um, you know, infused with a long history of wisdom and understanding. But still, the grasping is there and that grasping comes at a price. So I'm interested in our <clears throat> reflecting a little bit about our attitudes to particular approaches. 
Now the Buddha speaks of bhavana, or the practice of cultivation, the practice of development, the practice, the practice of bringing things into being, would be a literal translation of that word. And for some strange reason, we translate that word bhavana with meditation. And meditation is a strange term. Latin term meditari means thinking. And you know, there's a Benedictine tradition which speaks of various steps of spiritual practice. One of them is reading. One of them is thinking about what you've read. That's the meditation bit. And then there is the non-conceptual uh, awareness of that content. That is the contemplation bit. Sometimes the, the bit of prayer is thrown in there. So, And it doesn't take much fantasy to realize that the term meditation, in some strange way, is precisely not what Buddhist meditation, what Buddhist bhavana is about. I've never quite understood why we've arrived at this term, meditation, for the Buddhist concept of bhavana. If we bother to look around, unfortunately this is not a very broad teaching, although it is documented in quite a few instances, the Buddha speaks of four types of bhavana. The first one is development of body, kaya bhavana, development of our bodily, the, the dimension of body in our lives. That means the relationship to this body, and then the relationship to other bodies, and finally the, the relationship to our physical environment, to our planet. As you can see, there's a lot to be learned there. We're, uh, we're not, it's not looking very good uh, right now on this score. We, the Kaya Bhavana, uh, you know, Homo sapiens, sapiens does seem to be having a few lacuna there in, when it comes to development, the uh, relationship to this physical planet. Um, there's so many of us now that the mistakes we make in that domain come at a very high price. This would be a huge topic and some practitioners and some teachers have taken up environmental concerns. East and West, there are monks in Thailand who have started to ordain trees just to protect them from being cut down. Um, but also in the West, many teachers feel a growing concern and a, a growing need that Buddhist practitioners respond to environmental issues. A huge segment of teaching, a huge segment of concern, which um, we need to park here to move on in my topic for tonight. The second form of bhavana is uh, our relationship to the social world, to speak broadly. It is sila bhavana, it's the development of morality. No? Morality is what an individual has manifested or has understood or is willing to live up to of basic ethic notions. Yeah? The ethos would be the collective dimension and the morality would be what the individual actually has translated into behavior, into activity in his own or her own responsibility and behavior. So the whole domain of development here asks us to bring a mind of practice to the, our relational domain. Now that is, for me, that came as a surprise. You know, when I started with this Buddhist story, something over 30 years ago, I was a fierce individualist, like many male, males of my generation. You know, the, the, the sort of guys who end up in monasteries are usually not the guys who, who do what mommy tells them. Yeah? 
if I had do done what mommy told me, I probably wouldn't have ended up in a monastery. So you end up with people in a monastery who have, um, let's say, an over-average resilience, resilience against society's form of conditioning. Yeah? In other words, strong-willed uh, characters usually um, hell-bent on preserving their independence and individuality and not easily listening to others and definitely not interested in relational concerns and wanting to do it on their own. Yeah? So they kind of go to Asia or they look at meditation and all they see with their individualist goggles is little cushions and little mats all on their own. Everybody sits there on his own, on her own. Yeah? So that's what Buddhism is, me against the universe, me against Achillesas, me against my bad mind or something. Yeah? Whatever you're, maybe you, you, you were starting uh, under more auspicious conditions than I did, but definitely that's how it looked to me. So it's basically, I'm going to be my own man, I'm going to do it on my own, I'm going to do it, sit on that cushion, you know, and, you know, learn how to be independent. But then there were these people running around in my life all the time, you know, people, loads of them, you know. And, you know, you think, okay, monasteries are there to meditate. And one of the big lessons when I arrived in one of these monasteries in the mid-80s was actually the, re the realization that the major lesson in that monastery was not about meditation, it was about living with people who I would never have chosen to live with. Some of them were inspiring, you know, that's why I was there. But then all these other guys seemed to arrive, you know. People, you know, I thought, God, you know, how, how come... The I didn't know such people existed, you know. <laughs> so, and then we found ourselves in a community. And none of us wanted to be in a community. You know, we all had these kind of individual male notions of do it on your own, independence. But then these people kept kind of, you know, we were living there day and night, meditating, digging trenches and building monasteries and running institutions. And it was very hard to deny that we had relationships. So we tried, you know. We certainly give it a good bash at denying that we had relationships. I remember one time some of the nuns suggested their relationship was something to actually was a domain of practice and we looked at each other and said do we have relationships you know we just here together but we don't really have relationships do so there was a lot of uh, let's say learning to be done uh, that practice that bhavana has something to do with others, with my relationship to others, not just with my relationship to my mind or the states of this mind or my influence on mental um, forms of experiences, but actually on how human beings live together. So Sila Bhavana has a lot to say there and is a huge chunk of practice. However celibate and however independent and however individual you want to live and you may be living, uh, you will be having relationships. Even if you live alone in a cave, you need guys who bring you food or who organize your visa or who make sure that you stay alone in that cave or that uh, people don't come and interview you or, you know. You need to have people out there who make sure that you can enjoy and practice in your precious and cherished solitude. Generally that needs a few guys out there who cover for you. So one of my lessons early on was 
it's not just it's not just about how still my mind can get it's also how peaceful how attuned how forgiving how um, laterally aware my mind can become when i am with others how little my social footprint can become when we have to share facilities when we have to share spaces when the building we live in is very noisy or or we don't have much sleep or there isn't much food or we don't have much space or there is no heat or you know all those things yeah? uh, learning to develop one's impact on a community learning the skills of relatedness was a, a big lesson and in many ways i probably I'm most grateful for that kind of lesson. It's, it came as a complete surprise in my early monastic days that this took such a huge space in my experience. The otherness. The third form of bhavana is called chitta bhavana. Now we're getting closer to some of the stuff we probably would associate with the term meditation. Chitta bhavana has two major dimensions. One of them is stilling of mind. It's the capacity and our skill to make the mind more calm. That starts with establishing easefulness, establishing quiet, establishing non-distraction and from then on it goes through various degrees of skill in refining the quality of mind, attuning the mind, which is necessary for insight, and just learning to make the mind calm. This is a great challenge, maybe greater than at any other time in our lives, in our, the world history, because as far as we can make out, nobody has had so many uh, possibilities for distraction as we have. A few hundred years ago, you needed to be fairly rich if you wanted to have your own theater company and your own hunting lodge. Yeah. Nowadays, distraction and distractedness uh, is really democratic. You, know, you don't need to be rich to get scatterbrained and overdose on media. You don't really need to be particularly rich. So we have, um, in the worst possible way, democratically accessible all those things that scatter our minds, that dissipate our mental energies. In a strange and paradoxical way, this is also a fabulous time for meditation because now this is so rampant that um, whenever one situation becomes extreme, then that situation or the extremity of that situation calls for its opposite. So many, many more people than probably ever on this planet meditate. Yeah? Many, many more people than probably ever are conscious that they need to learn to still their minds, that they are, op that they are victims of their thought patterns, that they have a lot of bad mental and emotional habits which drag them around. So, in a strange way, the crisis of our time, the lack of depth, the distractibility of our minds, the um, uh, widespread nature of uh, forms of attention deficit, whether they are diagnosed or not diagnosed, um, makes it also uh, clear to many people that we need help in this. 
So that's why meditation centers are full. That's why monasteries are uh, receiving people who go there. That's why um, mindfulness is spoken of even in forms of the press, which generally would not have bothered showing an interest in contemplative practices 30 years ago. So in many ways, precisely because the times are bad, the times are good. Yeah. So let us acknowledge this as well. The second part of Chitta Bhavana is the development of the Brahma-viharas, of the four dimensions of universal empathy. Let's not sideline these practices. They are still, I believe, underestimated. Um, these four forms of cultivating the heart in ways that resonate with the in relational ways. Yeah? These are relational practices. Whether I relate to part of my experience or whether I relate in loving, in compassionate, in joyous, in equanimous ways to other human beings, this is a profound dimension of citta bhavana, of the developing of the mind, of mind cultivation. And finally, the last of those bhavanas, the last forms of those cultivation is development of wisdom, panya bhavana. Now we're coming closer to what you may think of as vipassana, insight. Whether you think this is a practice or whether you think this is a fruition, doesn't really matter much in this point. Um, Panya Bhavana, the development of wisdom. Uh, and that development of wisdom takes place through a variety of prongs. You know, one of the prongs is certainly the inherent intuitiveness of the mind, when the mind gets more still. One of the prongs is just asking questions. One of the prongs is curiosity. One of the prongs is a, a series of finely honed and orchestrated practices geared to bring about insight into basically the uh, three uh, characteristics of uh, conditioned experience. Practices that specifically target our denial of impermanence, our denial of contingency and the unsatisfactoriness that is woven into all of our experiences and that deny the impersonality of all I can find in my mind, in my heart and in my body. There is generally some basic agreement amongst Buddhist practitioners that these things are true and then there is a lot of tacit disagreement with this, a lot of psychological resistance. So, Panya Bhavana, the development of wisdom, is a whole segment of practices that are geared to bring about a wisdom that faces these realities, that faces uh, the truth of our existential situation. Also the truth of our needs, uh, the truth of our hang-ups, the truth of our virtues, uh, the truth of our inherent capacities. There's many truths there. There's not one big truth, but there's many truths there. And Panya Bhavana uh, encourages us to um, find ways to own the depth of our capacity, to live up to 
the highest vision the Buddha has held for human beings. Freedom, happiness, understanding, liberation. You know, the unshakable liberation of the heart. Now, if we translate all this simply as meditation, and meditation becomes mindfulness, and mindfulness becomes watching my thoughts, then you realize that we have lost quite a bit of Buddhist practice in the process of translation. So, I believe it's important to re-establish some of the original breaths, the gamut of a variety of forms of development uh, that the Buddha seems to insinuate when he speaks of bhavana, of development, rather than just uh, turning this development by a quirky translation with the word meditation and by a reduction of that term into some kind of uh, control of my thought process and then hoping that by distancing my thoughts and controlling them as good as I can by getting away from them because I can't really control them, um, that this would do the job, make me free, make me happy, make me whole and make me, you know, content. You'll understand easily that we quickly run into problems with this approach. So, we have a textual tradition which is quite broad. There's a lot of Buddhist texts, many, many more than you're probably aware of. Quite a few shelves full, depending on which edition you look at. If you look at the commentary, if you look at the text, at the mula, the root texts, in, uh, say, the Pali tradition, you derive at least at about somewhere between the 12 and the 15 uh, times the amount of, say, the New Testament. That's just the most modest uh, segment. Now, with the Pali text, you don't really have Theravada Buddhism, for example, because Theravada Buddhism is not so much in the Pali text as is in the commentaries. So the commentaries are a voluminous layer of textual interpretation that have grown around the suttas and the Vinaya and some of the early Abhidhamma, and that are double the amount of texts than the actual text I just mentioned. So, so your uh, the, the the printed edition I'm most familiar with arrives at the, something around over 120 volumes. Yeah. And then uh, we have the third layer, much of what we um, have as interpretative tools for Buddhism are in the third layer under sub-commentaries. Now you're up to about the 9th century AD and every commentary again has or most of the commentaries again have a sub-commentary which explains and quotes the commentary which explains and quotes the sutta. So you have a third body, it's all together and then you have a couple of medieval manuals, a few grammars, some chronicles, a few scattered uh, historical books but also some, some runaway poems. Um, and the whole thing, you know, really is a staggering amount of texts. And these texts tell us something about the seriousness with which the people who have both produced these texts and handed down these texts, have interpreted these texts, have organized these texts. And what we find that these texts try to do what was felt lacking in the suttas, or what was felt not to be obvious in the suttas. Now, the suttas are wonderful teachings. 
but they're not very organized. The suttas are basically accounts of situational moments. Yeah? The Buddha meets so-and-so, they have a little discussion, so-and-so listens to it, asks two questions, and then they all go away. Yeah? And the sutta is about this story, it's about the situation. So the suttas can be long or short, they can be philosophical or they can be uh, in mythical terms, they can be with a lot of dialogue or they can be with a lot of similes, but the sutta generally tells you an account of a particular situation. And the problem with that approach is you have, at the end of the day, after 45 years of teaching, and you have a pile of situational teachings. But if you say you want to find out what the Buddha said about anxiety, you have to look in many, many different places. Yeah? Because he didn't produce a system. He didn't pull out a system and say, listen folks, I'm going to talk about emotions and now I'm going to list the emotions and I'm going to, we just A to Z, we go through them. We start with anxiety and we uh, end up with xenophobia, yeah, or something like that. No? Well, he didn't do that. He responded to people. He didn't lay down the law. He didn't lay down a system. He was a beautiful teacher. He met people. His skill was a relational skill. It wasn't just awakened being. Who knows, there may have been other awakened beings. I hope there are other awakened beings. I hope there are many more than we know of. But in his case, he had a tremendous gift, a social organizational gift, and a pedagogical gift, a psychological gift. So we're not just having an exquisite meditator, which had an, ex an existential breakthrough. We had a completely awakened being that had gifts that was making it possible to teach what he had understood to people who had not yet understood what he had understood. And he had the social organizational skills to organize communities, to organize a body of teachings and structures that survived him. Now this is a big thing. That's why we're here. That's what enables us to, to be meeting here, to sit here. Because he wasn't just enlightened, but he was also capable of conveying that to unenlightened people. Sometimes people who have understanding and realization are not particularly good at teaching. You may know that from uni university guy days. Yeah? The top guy in your department may not be the best gifted, most patient and most understanding uh, you know, what, your, what your first semester guy needs. So the Buddha could do all that, but the tradition felt this material, these different situational teachings need to be organized. So if you read through these texts, if you take, make the effort and have a close look, you see how generations and generations of uh, disciples of the Buddha have tried to organize, refine, uh, stratify, uh, anthologize, put together, group, juxtapose through generations and generations to that this body of teaching has grown gradually bigger, more complex, in a way more complete and in other ways also the completeness has uh, sometimes overlaid, uh, overlayered the, the freshness of those teachings. Why is that? Well, I'll give you an example. One of the most classic passages about, say, the development of meditative process um, occurs two dozen times. And it says how a young man, 
listens to the teaching, finds face, shaves off uh, black hair and beard, becomes a monk, joins the holy life and learns the ropes, goes on alms round and comes back from alms round, eats his food, washes his bowl and hands and then sits down cross-legged with body erect, upright, establishes mindfulness and uh, breathes in and breathes out and then subside, puts, puts down the five hindrances well, neat little analogy, how the five hindrances disappear, and then enters into the jhanas, neat little analogies, how he enters the jhanas, and not long after that, uh, fulfills what he has uh, gone forth for in the holy life, and is a completely free human being. Now, now I've done that a number of years, this kind of cross-legged thing, you know, bending my legs and breathing in and sitting here upright. I've done it myself, I've done it with a few others, and you know, this doesn't happen that way. You know, I've crossed quite a few guys' legs, and I've crossed my own legs quite a few times. And it's rare that people just put aside the five hindrances after they've washed their hands and crossed their legs, and uh, they drop into the jhanas. And it's rare. People have jhanas. People go beyond hindrances. That's possible. That's, but it's rare. And it generally doesn't happen when they just cross a leg, establish mindfulness, and uh, try to be with their breath, yeah? knowing their long breath and knowing their short breath. It generally doesn't happen quite so straightforwardly as the sutta describes in more than two dozen times. Now one has the feeling something's missing there. Yeah? There is a kind of zoom taking place there. Yeah? Something has been cut out there. And the tradition tries to find out what, has been, what is missing there. So the, the way it is described, how he goes on arms round and how he has found faith, and then the way it is, how it is described, how he meditates, doesn't seem to be of the same scale. Yeah? So the scale seems to change in that description. And it's obvious that the Buddha probably, this is my hypothesis, so be careful with this, don't take that, take that with the necessary uh, pinch of salt. I believe that the Buddha, like many other Indian teachers, had a certain suspicion of textual transmission. As you may know, the Buddha didn't actually write things down. Uh, between his teaching and his, his lifetime, which most, most knowledgeable people would probably agree that he um, died around the year 400, plus minus a dozen years. Most, uh, most clued-up Indologists uh, seem to agree on this now. Um, be, between that time 4th century BC, or 400 BC more precisely, and the time when the th things were written down, there's about 300 years missing. Yeah? And it is clear that the Buddha stood in a tradition of Indian spiritual teachers, and Indian spiritual teachers were slightly sus suspicious of written texts a long time. Writing was known at the time of the Buddha, it's explicit. Nuns are allowed to, to learn writing. It's explicitly stated in the Vinaya. There's other references to writing. It's called scratching, likati. Uh, uh, and there are decrees, there are commercial documents, but spiritual teachings were not written down. This was frowned upon. And it's easy to understand why. Like all teachers, the Buddha was aware that much. You could give a sketch of something. 
you could give a sketch of the Satipatthana Sutta. But you know, reading the Satipatthana Sutta and practicing Satipatthana are two very different things. It's very hard to just read one of these texts and translate that into activity. That's why teachers come in. That's why an oral tradition comes in. And it's <clears throat> obvious to anybody who is in this business for a while, human beings are different. And while you can make a sketch of a basic outline of meditative practice, what it takes for this person to actually connect with the breath or with the body or with an aspect of their being or with an aspect of their resistance or with the talent they have, what it takes for this person needs to be framed very differently for that person. We have a different story. We arrive at this game with very differing conditions, both differing virtues, differing, differing hang-ups. And that needs to be taken in account. Any serious teaching, and that will have been as obvious to the Buddha as it is nowadays to anybody trying to convey any skill, you need to calibrate to the people and to their needs that you have in front. Yeah? If you want to if you care for what you have to teach, you need to be willing to frame that in different ways for different people because they listen with different ears, they arrive with different stories, they have different gifts and challenges. And if you're serious about conveying what you have to convey, you need to make sure that it meets them. You can't just give them a clean system and believe that they will just all lap it up. Some will, most won't. So. I understand that the reason why these teachings are so um, abbreviated, it seems, in particularly that uh, segment of a text, which uh, the locus classicus of it would be probably in the Samanya Pala Sutta, the uh, second discourse of the Diga Nikaya, um, the long discourses, where it is the, occurs most, uh, in most elaborate ways. This teaching is abbreviated because it is not meant as a complete meditative instruction. It is meant as a sort of blueprint. And the complete meditative instruction happens in a context of relationship. It doesn't happen in a context of a text, even a recited text. It happens in a context of people living with each other, people getting to know each other, people looking at how they pick up things, how they respond to things, what they already bring along, what they don't have. And it's that relational context that the Buddha probably, like many of his contemporary teachers and earlier teachers, felt was necessary to create for any teaching to be effective. So in, in many ways, it's not missing, it's just it wasn't felt necessary to spell out all the details because those details would not apply to all the people. So you gave the basic blueprint and then you work out the details within the context of a living relationship. So tradition, commentarial tradition and disciple tradition, and I believe these two to be largely congruent. So it's the disciples who made the commentaries. It's the first followers of the Buddha who will have been the source for the commentaries um, or for the raw material that we have now in form of the commentaries. These people were basically pooling their practical wisdom into some of these commentaries. So these commentaries have bring, bring us a great richness most of them are not translated yet, just to be clear. Uh, 
If you want my opinion, we've only just scratched the surface of Buddhist teaching. I mean, literally, just scratched the surface with a teaspoon at that. Yeah? We have not really taken much on board of Buddhist teaching. We have taken uh, a little bit on board, very selectively, based not so much on maybe what Buddhism says is the most important, but based on what we think is most important. Yeah? And we have carefully edited out other things. We're a lot more susceptible to wisdom teachings than to morality teachings, for example. We love to hear about emptiness and liberation and bliss, and we're not so keen on hearing about kamma and sila and rebirth and this kind of thing. Yeah? We think, yeah, this is cultural, you know, cultural stuff. You know, Buddha had to do this sort of thing to sell it, basically, in those days, but we don't really need to do this. You know, this isn't really anything for us. There's nothing really in there for me. We're going to get a clean, sanitized Buddhism that makes sense, speaks politically correct language, uses general-neutral language, and this kind of thing. Yeah. So, it's probably not like that. They took Chinese culture, which is a high civilization, uh, the year 80, that's when the first Chinese translations of Buddhist texts start to appear. It took the Chinese 200 years to basically take on board into their highly refined and cultured Taoist uh, thinking world Buddhist teachings, taking, taking them 200 years. I have no, no doubts that I will not really see the end of that process in my lifetime. I am sure that we have only just be begun to actually take this serious, what Buddhist teachings have to offer. We're still translating, we haven't translated much. We have translated in English, it's good. We have translated a lot of the source texts. Uh, most of the commentaries are still awaiting, let alone the sub-commentaries. Um, this uh, commentarial tradition tries to find some of the missing bits, some of the bits that were handed down in the relational context. So you have commentarial traditions tries to fill in all the bits that we don't know and that we wonder today. Did the Buddha really say, I should watch the breath at the belly or I should watch the breath at the nose? The Buddha didn't say. Yeah? And whenever the Buddha didn't say something, the commentaries had rather a lot to say about this. Yeah? And they say different things. So there's passionate teachings uh, that you should watch the breath at the level of belly or you should watch the breath at the level of uh, the nose. And in fact, there are some very credible voices say that actually you shouldn't watch your breath, you should feel your breath in the first place rather than just watch it because watching it uh, does something very differently than when you feel it. And so forth. We have a richness of often quite contradictory uh, teachings around how to go practically about meditation. And it's important to find out what we're doing, what's on offer, and what we're doing. So, if you look at today's offer, you've got loads of teachings. Some teachings uh, tell you do, you should really um, meticulously label your experience. The practice that turns up somewhere in the 5th century in the Visuddhimaka, the concept of Salakana turns up, and it's very likely that this teaching one of the aspects of Anapanasati, one of the aspects of how to generate a method for arriving at 
attention, that's how it is called, manasikara vidha, uh, is uh, fixing. One of them is counting. So the, the practice of counting is, is, becomes evident in the, in the Visuddhimaka and a few other practical tools, wonderful stuff. But then you don't know how this tallies with other recommendations, how to practice. And at the end of it, you have our story today. So you go to Gwenka and you learn sweep, sweeping and body sensation and burning up sankaras and maximum determination sits. You go to Mahasi's tradition and you learn to label. You learn to go through the, through the jnanas. You learn to do your nama rupa parichedina and so forth. You get very meticulous. You go to Ajahn Chah, who has never done a meditation technique, you know, who just works on attitude. I'm no, I, I know of no teaching where the Ajahn, Ajahn Chah teaches a method. Or you go to countless other people, they generally refer to their techniques as jhana or as vipassana or as bare awareness or open awareness or choiceless awareness or samatha or jhana, you know countless names, and then you find out what they're doing, and it doesn't seem to map necessarily very well with the rest. So we make choices. Some of those choices are conscious. You know, I just do Zen because that's what the guy taught me when I stumbled into the dojo down down the road where I live. Yeah, that's how it happened for me. I just bumbled into some guy who taught me Zen and uh, went to a dance basement and we sat on bundles of paper and stared at the white wall and I learned to not believe anything that buzzed between my ears. Yeah? And I learned to call this Shikantaza, just, just sitting. You know? Sitting there, staring at the white wall, having my eyes half closed and not believing anything that the mind thought. And at the end we did a little recitation and I walked out of this and wondered what that was. And it was powerful, it was wonderful. I was, I'm eternally grateful. It was the only thing that really took me in. It wouldn't be inspiring today, but then it was just right. It was just what I needed. I couldn't have handled any Buddhist ideology. I couldn't have handled much ritual. Uh, I needed a clean and meticulous piece of advice, neatly radical and formulated in a slightly masculine way. Uh, giving me heroic feelings. Uh, that's exactly what I needed. That's really picked me up. And I did that. And I was sold on it. After 10 weeks of this, I realized this is important. And I had decided to not make up my mind whether I continue with this unless 10 weeks of this had elapsed. So I was sitting there staring at the wall for 10 weeks and that was gorgeous. It was excellent. They wouldn't do it for me. It wouldn't cut it today. Yeah, I think it's fairly simplified Buddhism. Um, but it was precisely right. So we make choices. Yeah? And we make choices on our particular practice. So some of our choices um, are not based on what Buddhism has to offer, but they are choices based on what I'm already inclined towards. Yeah? So generally we make wrong choices. That means if I'm a control freak, if I think things are never clear enough and precise enough, I'm probably going to end up with Mahasi somewhere, yeah? And I'm going to label the stuff right down, yeah? I'm going to really get to grips and slow down and label and stay with this. Yeah? Because that's one way 
I can gain safety. Yeah? If I am feeling this is chaotic, this is uncontrollable, this is scattered, I need precision, I need tools, I need clear guidelines, and this is what I find is attractive. It meets my inclination. And this may be just right for a time. It may not take you, it is very unlikely to take you to the end of the job. Huh? Not because the technique uh, doesn't have great potential, but because um, it will be the wrong thing for you at some point, precisely because it meets your inclination. And while it was necessary to invite you in, to give you something vaguely familiar that you could see the value of, and because you, something in you already resembles this, you latch on to it and you do it. And after a while, it exhausts itself. Yeah? You need something different. And if you don't notice this, you will not grow. The guy with authority difficulties or with secret suspicion that he's never done well in any structure will go to Ajahn Chah because Ajahn Chah doesn't offer methods. Ajahn Chah says attitude is everything, you know, intention is everything. So bring your heart there and just breathe mindfully. Yeah? Ah, thank God, I don't need to do techniques, I don't need to do yanas, I don't need to label things. Fantastic freedom. Yeah? And that's just what saves me. So I feel I can land there. Yeah? I feel I can actually trust that I can cope with this type of approach and I can somehow, this is manageable for me. It's just what you need to get in there. And very soon you will find out this actually won't cut it. Yeah? You need structure. You need to learn something. You need discipline. You need, to <laughs> you need to stratify your experience. You need to disentangle some of that. If I feel easily constricted, and if I feel um, often overwhelmed, I love spaciousness, you know, I, I want to have distance, I want to, uh, just give me open space, yeah, just no tasks, no duties, no object focus, no anchors, and no, no narrow challenges, yeah, just give me open awareness is wonderful, yeah, makes me possible, makes it possible for me to meditate, so I do that. This is my way in. But sometimes you will find out, actually, it's not very clear what's going on. Somehow it doesn't seem to get more still. Uh, somehow things are not transforming. I am sitting now, but basically I need tools. So our choices, how we practice, are likely to be informed by our tendencies and inclinations, then they're often informed by some of the things we find attractive, but also we find are the opposite of what we fear. They have something to do with our self-image. I'm doing well with structure, I can really discipline. Yeah? There you go. So any, any structured approach to meditation is probably more likely to be attractive to you. Because you feel that you can make progress. Because you feel that this is inviting. And after a while you find out, actually, <laughs> you need something else. Now this is not because you've made a mistake. This is because you've done right. Yeah. Let me just be clear. This is just how learning happens. 
finding out that what we what has initially inspired us what has invited us in or what has made it seem doable for us is not going to do it anymore is part of the learning that is because the learning takes place it's not because you've done it wrong yeah just just be clear any learning any skill if you want to play piano if you want to learn aikido if you want to learn um, origami you will probably have some ideas what you need and you will probably have some ideas what this is and you will find out as you go along that these ideas are not very accurate that's not important whether they were accurate important is that they got you going yeah the same horses that got you into the desert will not take you out of the desert you will need to change horses that is obvious any real practice will need to take you to a corner where it gets narrow, where you can't maintain your self-construct. It doesn't just get better and better and better. That's what we write in our brochures. Yeah? <laughs> Happiness, bliss, peace, mind, insight. But everybody who does this long enough will know this is not how it works. It takes you to the place where we get stuck. It takes you to the place where it gets tight. It takes you to the place where we, the cherished self-images and our notions of our practice and of our tools all gets called into question. If your practice doesn't take you there, uh, I have some doubts about the effectiveness of your practice. It's necessary to weep in this. Yeah? If you don't weep, if you don't cry, and if you don't despair occasionally in your practice, I'm not saying this is all of your practice, I hope it's not all of your practice, uh, but if your practice is effective, it will take you to corners you don't want to go to. It will take you to places you, had, you would have given lots of money to not have to go to. It may be, you may be finding out that it may take you to exactly that place you tried your practice to, to construe your practice in a way to never have to go there again. Yeah. So, I practice because I don't want to be helpless. And I know when my practice is working, it takes me to the place where I go, where I meet my helplessness. It's not just that. You know, I've learned to make my mind still and I've learned a few tricks along the way. But I know that any improved version of a Kinshino is going to suffer and cannot be rescued and has to be given up. It's bleeding somewhere along the lines and it's it's going to transform. It's not going to be a reliable vehicle. So I'd like to encourage you to think about dimensions of practice. According to me, Buddhist meditation practice needs four particular aspects, and they are, I reckon them to be indispensable. The first one is the skill of calming and stilling the mind. I see no way that we can really grow with introspective on the introspective path, if we do not learn to make the mind still. It doesn't mean that you have to have Arupa Jhanas to make, to make insight. That's not what I'm saying, but it needs a practical skill to find ease in your way of being with your body and with your mind as you are now. A kind of comfort in discomfort. Uh, a place where you can rest, where you can trust, where you can abide, and where you can find a rudimentary well-being in, you know, 
the shifts of your life, in the sensations of your body state, in the climate of your mind. You need to find some, that's how Samatha practice begins, learning to put oneself at ease. And then from that ease, learning to still the mind, learning to still the body, learning to still the emotions. If you can still a lot, wonderful. Go as deep as you can. If you can only still a little, do that. So I do, I have a great emphasis on, on the Samatha aspect. If you listen to me, I'm interested in questioning, in thinking. Um, I'm interested in inquiring. I believe we need to do something. I'm interested in effort. I'm interested in translating. Uh, all kinds of things, translating teachings into psychological realities. Uh, but we do need stillness. We do need the skill, the tools, the methods to make the mind more quiet, to go from average busy to quiet, touching that inner pond, that inner well of stillness that is always there beckoning any moment you listen to silence between my my words and you find a way into that stillness so i think this is indispensable there are many forms of this uh, buddhist practices are variegated and uh, quite uh, subtle across the traditions you know that stillness has um, has uh, found powerful adherence the second dimension of meditation is that we pull back the identification, that dramatic step back from the intensity, from the dispersiveness, from the rawness of my experience, that one step back, gaining perspective. This is indispensable, that I can move out a step. A thought no longer here, but now here. Ah, I see there's a space around the thought. The thought arises, does its number, goes away. The thought here is a lot more credible. The thought here is still a thought, and it's still the same message, but it seems I have a lot more distance. I have a lot more space. A powerful way of learning to get perspective and learning to keep out of things. Now, for many people, this is meditation, keeping out of things, getting distance, getting things in control, making sure it doesn't overwhelm me. Yeah? So that, for many people, is meditation. Now, it's part of meditation, because out there, you don't actually have a lot of power. You can't transform. You can't act. You can't properly feel. You can't really learn. You can't um, sublimate. You can't purify. The only thing is you can is feel safe and see more clearly. But that safety is lost as soon as you go in again. And if you, you can't stay out there. Yeah? You can't stay in orbit to your own life. And if you do so, or if you try so, it's, it comes at a high price. The third movement is after the second movement and it necessitates that you're confident about that second movement. The third movement is precisely the opposite. You have to go back in. Carefully, in negotiated ways, not cocky, respectfully, 
go back into what triggers you, to what seems to disturb you, to what seems to enthrall you. Uh, this is something you need to approach again with all the skills you have developed in the first two dimensions. Your capacity to stillness and your capacity to stay out and to disidentify or de-identify. I'm not sure which one is right. Yeah. So stage three is personal. Stage three is generally messy. You can't keep squeaky clean on that one. Yeah. You will lose your plot. And you will have to pull out again. Go back to stillness, go back to distancing. But you cannot transform things you haven't arrived at. You know, it's psychologically not salubrious and it's spiritually a catastrophe. You cannot avoid meeting the, the enemy. Yeah? You, if you, you want to meet the enemy and transform the enemy. That, that, that is necessary. <laughs> yeah? Whatever the enemy is, you know, your lethargy or your anger or your greed or your unwillingness to think or your unwillingness to develop, you, meet, you need to meet that in some way. You need to engage with that in some way. Just distancing it won't do the job. So that third stage is indispensable. The fourth stage is, again, it's coming out and learning to understand what you've learned in stage three in personal terms, you learn in universal terms. You learn to understand patterns. Patterns of things that make you free, patterns of things that ensnare you, patterns of things that are helpful, patterns of things that are skillful for particular topics. Yeah? So stage four or dimension four is you learn to see in others, for example, what you have learned in very personal terms, that it can look very different what you have learned in a situation for her. It can look very different. You learn to understand that what you experienced in very personal terms and personal ways with your conditioning and your socialization and your hang-ups and everything in there, you learn to depersonalize that again and recognize the universal nature of growth, of freedom, of happiness, of stillness, of emptiness, this kind of thing. Yeah? Now obviously we can get hang up if you, we can get hung up in any of those stages. If you get hung up on stage one, then it's never quiet enough. You, know? you say, oh, I can't really meditate, can't really do this Vipassana stuff. I got to be more still. And maybe you're right. Maybe it should be more still. But maybe you're just obsessed. Yeah. And you miss out on the other three stages simply because you, you favor your obsession. If you're hung up on stage two, it will probably look like something. It's never safe enough. Yeah. I got to make sure that this is really not being more dangerous to me, that it is less risky to me. I need to go further away. I need to make sure I can control this better. I can't really work with this before I'm very, very sure that it's not going to bite me. Yeah. And I go further and further away and I'm trying to control and it never really works because I can only control under very ideal conditions. As soon as I stop meditating, you know, life just happens again. Stage three, if you get hung up there, then it's dramatic. You have to keep working through stuff and you need to go through childhood and the, another therapy and more emotions and pacify this one and pacify that one. You keep getting stuck in some personalized narrative of your meditative experience. Yeah. Stage four is not so much 
danger to be hung up in. It may be that you have an overly cognitive approach to uh, patterns, say dependent arising or awakening factors, or, uh, you know, big patterns in Buddhist teaching. So you may be pretending that you're actually understanding this while cognitively distancing your experience. But it's not usually a big uh, problem for getting hung up in. So I'd like you to consider a little bit uh, what you're doing in your own practice, what you find inspiring, what you have chosen, what you have come to understand uh, after a few years of practice, um, and uh, make use of some of those uh, uh, thoughts. Good, let me stop. Let's take a minute of silence and then finish with the recitation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.